So could you let everyone know just what is like a the quick and dirty definition of UXR and maybe some examples about how, like what it is in industry? Sure. Yeah, I mean, anything that has a screen, like your phone or the computer, has an interface or some design where all the actions, like what you're supposed to click on to get in there, how you're supposed to buy something online, all of that is considered the user experience of that. If you're trying to choose a bank, like it matters how the experience of it looks, everything from your perception of that company just by looking at their design to what it's actually like for you to try to accomplish something on that site. And people don't have very much patience. If a design is, is not good, then they're like, well, that's a bad company. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for grad students who want to survive grad school and thrive in their career afterwards. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with Dr. Greg Murray. Greg is a user experience researcher who was formerly a tenured English professor. Greg joins the podcast to talk about how he discovered user experience research, also called UXR, why academics are a perfect fit for the UXR space, and how grad students can prepare themselves to enter the industry job market. This is a great episode for folks who are interested in the UXR space, as well as for anyone who wants to hear about how to make the leap from academia to industry. Be sure to rate and review the podcast if you like today's episode. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Greg. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I've had the opportunity to talk with you twice before, and both were great conversations that I loved. And so I'm excited to be able to share uh, you and your story with the listeners today. So first things first, could you just introduce yourself uh, briefly to everyone listening? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Greg Murray, and um, I am now a UX researcher. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've gotten really fascinated by the UX uh, research world recently, Um, originally from uh, Savannah Young, who uh, was our mutual contact or she shared some content of yours and she was actually on the podcast. Um, I don't remember which episode, I think it was episode four or five, something like that. But so let's, let's start from the beginning. You've had a really interesting journey, but let's go back. So why did you originally get into academia? And I guess more specifically, why did you go to grad school? Yeah. Um, and I think there are a lot of different reasons that, you know, I made that choice. I remember in my undergrad, I was just really excited about ideas and found myself wanting to be immersed in that. I liked the idea of inspiring others. And I actually really wanted to be a professor since I was little because I just had this vision of a life where that was the focus was like following my heart and following my curiosity and getting to share that with, with others. 
and go on that journey together and constantly be learning new things. And yeah, I think I was idealistic in that, um, you know, compared, I guess, you know, the hindsight that I have, I feel like um, I, I look at myself then and say, that was really idealistic. I'm not sure I had a very well sketched out vision of what that was going to look like. But that, I think, was the basis for it. And I tried to get an industry job um, right out of school without really preparing for anything mm -hmm. in industry. So I was able, because I was had high achievement in college, I was able to get interviews um, with consulting firms, but I didn't know anything about what they did, and I didn't prepare. So, <laughs> um, and and I think that helped me to to want to double down and pursue my passion. Um, I was, this was 2002. And the advice that I got then was don't go. Mm. So that was 20 years ago. Um, or if you go, just know what you want and what you're willing to do to get it. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I ended up getting a teaching position and spent a few years doing that while I prepared grad school applications. And then I went um, to get my PhD in 2006. And what was your area of study that you went into? Yeah, so I was doing English literature and I actually had minor or, or majored in that in, as well as philosophy um, in undergrad. But I was looking for an, a unique angle, of course, because <laughs> preparing for grad school, I was like, um, I like books. I want to study something and then figure it out. But yeah. you have to demonstrate that you already can do it. So I, um, I gravitated toward um, play and uh, play, you know, playing games, playfulness. And it had a really sociological side to it. So I was interested in literary games as like a sociological phenomenon, I guess. And I, I did end up studying that. I, I think there are some reasons that I ended up staying with that um, because I think I found out after a few years um, that if I didn't choose an expedient path to my degree, that I was not going to stay. Um, mm -hmm. because I was, you know, unhappy with some aspects of the, of the journey. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what aspects of the, the academic journey, uh, you were unhappy with? Yeah. Um, so I, when I got the advice that I shouldn't go because there weren't any jobs and now it's way worse. <laughs> But yeah. when I got that advice, because there weren't any jobs, I thought, well, and this was the advice that I felt like I had internalized as a kid was, well, if you go into something, as long as you work very, very hard and you pursue your dreams with a lot of vigor and discipline and everything, then you'll be fine, even if it's not the best choice, even if it's something mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, doesn't have a lot of good outcomes. 
that I'll be able to get one of those good outcomes and it will be fine. So I think that I ended up really trying to focus on what I could, what I could do and get as many accolades and opportunities as I could having chosen to do that path and somewhat like stubbornly chosen that path. Hmm. Yeah. And so, so you, you went to get your PhD in uh, English and literature and Mm -hmm. then what was the process like of, you know, you're nearing the end of your PhD, you're looking at jobs. I don't know if you have, postdocs in that field, but maybe you're looking at like postdocs or teaching positions or that kind of a thing. Like what was the the end part of your grad school career like? Yeah, it was, it was actually really interesting. And I want to be careful how much I disclose about the precise situation, but my um, advisor had some health concerns while I was dissertating. I and there was not very much communication during that period. And that meant, in addition to the rest of my committee um, and their level of engagement, I was not really getting very much feedback. And I wanted to get done. So I just kept writing. And, you know, like 250 pages later, it was uh, it was like, okay, this is what I've got. And I need to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, they weren't like, you need to redo this whole thing. Um, this doesn't work. And I think I think I lucked out in in that sense that because I did see some of my cohort based on who their advisor was being told, oh, well, you need to read all the books that I like or mm. before yeah. you take on your project. Or you need to study this particular thing um, that I'm interested in, and you need to do this in order to train yourself for the field. And I think I was very fortunate in that the direction I received um, was like, what do you? Well, it, it was it deferred to what I perceived I needed. So I felt like I was asked. Are you trying to get a job? Are you trying to get out of here? Are you trying to do a top shelf dissertation? Like, what are your goals here? And at that point in my life, I was already uh, like, I need to do this and get out of here. Hmm. So that I think it was nice that that was, we were able to have that. Um, yeah. But I want to back up for a second, too, because I didn't start with that attitude. Oh, yeah. um, I started with wanting to, you know, be the most amazing researcher and give myself the greatest opportunities to be a professor and to get the job that I wanted. So after one year, um, I was like, I'm going to reapply to the grad schools that I think can do that for me. Oh, and I had an unsuccessful round of reapplying. Uh, and, and that actually, I think, was a really tough thing on a number of different levels. One, it 
indicated concern and dissatisfaction. It communicated dissatisfaction to the people that I asked to write for me, mm, yeah. which didn't go over very well. But it also was an example of a failed enterprise on my yeah. part, like something that I, I worked really hard to try to do that didn't pan out. And I thought, this is even worse than I thought. Mm -hmm. Because what I was seeing was you had to go to certain schools to get a job. Right. And I wasn't, and I wasn't able to go to one of those schools. So it was like, it was kind of giving me an indication that um, my plan was was maybe not as solid as I thought it was. Yeah, interesting. So, so then, how did you find uh, the academic job market to be? Well, I almost I was fortunate. I, I in some ways I skirted the academic job market um, by looking for a position while I was writing my dissertation. And I found a school, Georgia Perimeter College, which was not conducting a nationwide search. They, mm. I think it was, their strategic plan was not very good, but they were only advertising their jobs on kind of Georgia job boards, I guess. Interesting. Like you couldn't find it in the Chronicle of higher ed, which yeah. to me is just like, huh? <laughs> um, and I was looking for adjunct work, hmm. but I thought, you know, so that I could pay the bills while I dissertated and I applied for a tenure track physician and was, you know, to my surprise was invited to interview. Yeah. Um, but it's funny too, this, and this story is I think revealing in some ways it was, it actually turned out to be hard for me to accept the position and that, and this story should indicate just how deep some of these problems are in academia. I got a phone call from the VP of academic affairs at this school offering me a job. And then he said, um, you know, when did you get your PhD? And I said, oh, I'm I'm defending in three weeks. And he said, oh, you don't have it yet. Mm. And I said, oh, no, I just, you know, I'm I'm uh, but I'm about I have a, my date set and I'm going to go do that. And he's like, oh, I don't actually we can't offer you the position. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, well, why the hell not? Like. Uh, oh, because uh, candidates for it have to have their degree in hand to be considered. And I'm like, what kind of a school is this? Yeah. And what kind of a policy is that? Um, welcome to Georgia, is what I would mm -hmm. say. Um, Georgia's entire education system is just filled with insane difficulties like this. Yeah. And like what feel like deliberate hurdles to make the liberal academy 
frustrated and yeah <laughs> you know what i mean um i know it's that sounds like the you know a pretty dark thing to say but my time in the university system of georgia there was just absurdities yeah so did you ended up getting that job so i i so what i did thanks for getting me back on track i ended up um saying hold on i'm gonna see um what was the the problem turned out to be that you had to have at least a master's in hand mm -hmm. but i went into a phd program directly from undergrad sure so i called the university of minnesota and i said i need a master's because i'm not able to be offered a job can you give me a master's and I think the dean ended up, you know, taking that on and saying, okay, well, this affects our job, you know, acquisition ratio or whatever, and it, we need to get that up. That was probably part of his logic, but also he probably had some sympathy for me, and he went down the hall and got that signed and told them to award it to me. Um, so I was able to send that over. And this guy, the VP was just, just such a, you know, um, I, I won't name his name, but um, he wasn't willing to accept a fax with it. He needed a paper wow. copy. Okay. Yeah. And like yeah. I said, I mean, this should have been an indication that I should have, that I should cut my losses. Yeah. Um, but, but I don't think that it was all bad. I, I ended up getting a lot out of my time at, at Perimeter. Perimeter ended up merging with Georgia State University, mm -hmm. um, which opened up some additional opportunities for me um, from a the perspective of just opportunities within, you know, the, the university, but ultimately, yeah, it's, that was, uh, a really, the writing to me was, was probably on the wall and I just wasn't reading it. Yeah. So when did you know that you wanted to leave academia for industry? So I, and I, I ended up getting tenure. I spent 10 years in that position. Um, I took on an internal role, uh, an appointment with the Honors College as part of it. And there were some very positive things about that. Um, I really enjoyed teaching. I got involved with some amazing colleagues and made really good friendships. Um, but it, it still started to feel to me like um, there were problems. My school was mired in a scandal in 2011, my second year there. I think I've got that time, timeline right. And that was, I think, embarrassing to the institution. Um, there was the merger, which uh, created confusion but also some hope that some things might change for the better 
And so there was a little bit of, there were periods where I, I was waiting for things to get better because it was so hard to get a position in the first place. And I thought, well, if things get better here, then I'll have what I want, which is, a, which is tenure at a, a, you know, at a university. Like that's, that ended up being, uh, satisfying the goal that I had. So I thought, well, let's see if that happens. And in the meantime, I really committed myself to having a strong tenure file and doing things that I thought were really valuable to, you know, to my record, but also to, you know, the community I was a part of. But I never really lost that, like, these are my goals. This is what I'm trying to accomplish. And um, there was my pay, my salary was frozen for seven years by the University System of Georgia. Like, they didn't give us a raise for cost of living raise for seven years. So I was, like, making wow. less money, you know. Um, right. And the raises were so small that I, when I got promoted to associate professor, um, I, for all intents and purposes, made less money than I had the year before because we didn't wow. get a cost of living raise and the raise wasn't very big. So I was doing things on the side, you know, trying to get a, a strong tutoring practice going. Um, because I just, I felt like I needed more income in order to live the way that I wanted to live. Um, and, you know, I had hoped that I would be able to have a family as well. And I just didn't see that, um, uh, being, you know, really making enough money to do that. And so I was, um, I was sad about that. And I was trying to figure out, well, how do I carve out the life that I want in right. this space? I was fulfilled on the level of connecting to my community. I was filled in, fulfilled in making a difference. I was fulfilled in having colleagues that I could talk about ideas with. And I, I, I wasn't really killing it in, in publishing the way that I wanted to, hmm. but I was getting doing enough so that I could get my promotions that I wanted. Right. But then there was the, I think the salary was the biggest, the biggest piece um, that I just didn't feel like I could, could make it work with that. But then on the flip side, I couldn't figure out what else I would do. I felt right. so pot committed. I mean, I had gotten a humanities undergraduate degree. I had pursued that and done a PhD in English literature. It was, it was interdisciplinary, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't something that required quantitative research. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't an applied version of, the degree that I did. So I thought, well, as a researcher, 
moving into industry, I wouldn't know how that would be applied anyway. Yeah. So I just kind of, I mean, to be, to be candid, I think I just kind of personally spiraled a bit, you know, for, for a few years until I was like, um, I've got to make a change and I've got to figure out what that's going to be, what that's going to look yeah. like. Yeah. And so how did, was UXR your next step? Yeah. And if so, how did you find out about it? Yeah, UXR just came on my radar through a friend of mine who had done uh, the, the UXDI, UX Design Immersive Boot Camp at General Assembly, and then had landed uh, a really good job. And this person... I, I was friends with, but, you know, we didn't hang out regularly. And um, he had done graduate work and gotten a PhD um, and then was on the market for years and was adjuncting, was in that wheel. And I, and I could tell just, you know, from our social media friendship, you know, that that was not satisfying to him and then i remember we we actually did end up hanging out at an event one time together and i was like things seem really good with you like what's what's new oh yeah i got this job and stuff and and i wanted to know more about it so we went out to dinner and we talked about it and i was like okay this feels really interesting and he was like oh i got the bill i make twice as much money as you <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> like, so i got yeah. it and this was this friend was not not a show off but like but this sure. was just not really what we did as um professors or anything we would just right. you know I, I i was always very conscious so that i could make sure that i was able to meet my own budget but he's just like right. it doesn't it doesn't matter. I make plenty of money for that. And I was like, yeah. what do you do again? <laughs> like, um, and, but I, that conversation was also significant, not just for that part of it, but because he kind of took me through and said, okay, so what I do, the skills that you have are very, very valuable in this space. Hmm. Um, and, and they actually are not something that everybody just has. Um, yeah. I, I feel like most you, grad yeah. students should rewind that last 10 seconds. I, I, um, it was emotionally, it, it affected me emotionally in the moment Yeah. when he said that, because I, I had come to believe that I had wasted my time. It, right. When it comes to uh, getting, you know, acquiring valuable skills, wow, I had the chance. Wow, I was paying mm -hmm. all this money. Now, in grad school, I did get, uh, you know, funding for my program, but I still had to pay off my undergraduate education, which was a very expensive one. So 
I was thinking, you know, when I looked at the, just the conversion there, um, or the investment, so to speak, like how much have I put into this and what, what do I have that I can then translate into what I need, um, in, you know, in order to feel like I'm thriving in my career. Yeah. So, so when did you, uh, so you went to this dinner, you learned about this, this friend's job in UXR and what it was like and how the research skills that many grad students learn are really quite applicable and valuable in the space and people who don't go into a research oriented profession, like many PhD students do basically don't get these skills. So you learn all of this, and when do you decide right. to actually start applying to jobs? Yeah, so I decided, um, because I didn't have much of a tech background, um, I I thought, here's, a, here's what I can do. I can do the boot camp, and that'll get me all the basics, and then I will learn how I can leverage the skill set that I have to get my job. I probably didn't need the boot camp, to be honest with you. Um, but at that point in my life, I was also teaching online. This was the beginning of the pandemic. And so I thought, but I can do the boot camp at the same time as I'm teaching these courses. I didn't have a heavy load that that summer. Um, and so I went ahead and took that at the same time. And it was a lot of work, but only because I was doing both things. Um, yeah. But I, I skilled up, and what I found was, especially in formulating my resume and getting it to communicate to companies that I had done relevant things, that really required a change in emphasis on what I had done and a change in the language that I used to express it. Mm. So I had done all the right things. Like I had managed projects or uh, like I had managed a thousand projects. They were research yeah. projects, right? Yeah. With students like trying to write about what a, a position paper or something, but that was a project that required scoping the project and determining exactly what, they needed to cover in, in the project and scoping is very, very important in UXR in product design generally, probably yeah. in business. Generally, you have to figure out what you're going to take on so that you can put a good plan together and execute that plan. And that's really what it's all about. And it's not, it's not hard to determine what needs to be done. Isn't right? Like what I found and I, it, this, this may sound cavalier or something, but like, it's not as hard as what we do in graduate school, like writing and making a unique contribution to a field is hard. Um, identifying and doing a literature review and then feeling like you have the intellectual ability and discipline to add something to that mm -hmm. 
to even determine what you would add is hard. Yeah. In this space, I'm talking to six people and I'm asking what they think of a design and like trying to understand whether they're frustrated or not and pursuing that so that I can design the thing better. That's easy. Yeah. I mean, that's just not as hard as trying to identify a unique lens for understanding, you know, the the lacrimose nature of modernist poetry in a particular neighborhood in the United States. Like, I mean, something incredibly specific hmm. um, that you're trying to say something about that requires, um, you know, extreme devotion and concentration um and i'm not saying that you can't work hard in product design but like the skills required to do the the dissertation work yeah you've got it if, if you can do that you're fine right yeah that makes sense so i uh I've got a couple things bubbling in my mind. One, I just wanted to kind of like forecast the rest of our time. I yeah. think I think it would be great to, if you'd be willing to, come back maybe in a few months to talk specifically about the UXR jobs you've had and that kind of the path after the first getting into UXR. But I feel like really sticking with uh, like the introduction to UXR right now would be really great. Um I also just remembering that we have like a hard deadline to end and I know we're going to want a couple minutes to wrap things up. So, so, so let's just, uh, focus this time on the transition to UXR and then maybe we can cover a little bit about that first job. And then I do have some questions, which I'll start now and, and, and do some later, but for the folks who are listening, I, um, I know what UXR is probably mostly cause we've had conversations about it. Um, <laughs> okay. So could you let everyone know just what is like a the quick and dirty definition of UXR and maybe some examples about how, like what it is in industry? Sure. Yeah, I mean, anything that has a screen, like your phone or the computer, has an interface or some design where all the actions, like what you're supposed to click on to get in there, how you're supposed to buy something online, all of that is considered the user experience of that. So you buy from the, you know, the minute that you get onto say an e-commerce website, like let's say, say you're going to buy some sporting goods equipment and you go to Dick's Sporting Goods online and you're looking around and you are, you make a decision to buy something and that whole process, that's your user experience. And it's competitive among mm. e-commerce sites and everybody. If you're trying to choose a bank, like it matters how the experience of it looks, everything from your perception of that company, just by looking at their design to what it's actually like for you to try to accomplish something on that site. And people don't have very much patience. If, if yeah. a design is, is not good, then they're like, well, that's a bad company. Or if something is hard to do, they're like, well, I don't, why should I have to deal with that? If Dick, if it's hard to buy the thing at Dick's Sporting Goods, I'll just go to a different Sporting Goods website where it's not going to be hard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Amazon's a great example of user experience because they were one of the first companies 
to say, all right, we are actually going to build something and just on the basis of what people want to, to, to use. Um, we're going to make it as easy as possible to buy something yeah. and to have it shipped to them whenever they want it. And they followed that and they just kept asking people, oh, you don't like this design? Like, what if we did this? And the people gave them feedback and they improved their website to the point now where it's, you know, it's obviously a successful um, model for, for, mm. for purchasing something online. user research is part of that product design and the part of it that it is is trying to understand what people's behavior and attitudes are toward the user experience mm -hmm. so you can look at analytics um for instance website traffic circulation data and find out oh People that were trying to buy something at Dick's Sporting Goods, like they, 80% of them left the site when they reached the checkout funnel. Right. That would be useful to know for a company. Oh, well, maybe we need to fix something in the checkout funnel that's, that's not working. Or what their attitude is toward it. Oh, every time I go to that site, I kind of just, I feel like it's messy. Or actually, to use the Amazon example, <laughs> I always feel like it's pretty chaotic in there. But I mean, it has other virtues, of course. For sure. But you're trying to determine how you can make the design of something better. And we're talking about digital products. When we're talking about user experience, we're talking about a digital product and how to, um, yeah, make the experience of it better. Yeah. And so why do you think grad students are or academics in general academic researchers are uniquely positioned for the uxr space so what's really required i think to be a good researcher or a good user researcher is that you care what people think you're curious about it and you care you want to understand what difficulties they had or what they really loved about something. Even if it is shopping for a pie or something, mm. you are, you like people and you're curious and interested in them and what they think. And you're willing to, you know, ask them about it and learn with an open mind. And that's curiosity is what leads people to graduate school. Mm, yeah. It's not always the most practical choice, especially, you know, if you're going in the humanities where that output or your goal like mine was to be surrounded by ideas and you love critical thinking. You love like if you're a philosophy, I mean, you love drawing distinctions between different things. You love thinking about things and understanding like the, the most precise way of describing something. Um, well, if a business has a problem and they want to know how to solve it, and the problem is how can we make this design better, you would want someone who is curious what people think, who has the discipline of a researcher so that they aren't led by bias, 
um, they're they're rigorous and they're disciplined enough to get you the answer, and it's going to be right because they're precise in their thinking. But like that is a humanities grad student. That is a social science graduate student. Um, yeah. Now there's some bias in the industry itself, maybe against PhDs, and some of it may be warranted to some extent because. Possibly they are so passionate about the social or political implications of whatever it is that's going on that it's that they want to reframe the question again and again and again and make it about how it's an important social issue. And that's more accepted in the academy. And it's important work. Hmm. But in the business world, they are, and in the tech spaces, while they are concerned with the ethical implications of what they're doing, the person who is asking you to conduct research is following a business strategy and trying to meet business goals. So um, you get to practice empathy with the people you're researching with, you get to be curious. Um, but you're not just talking over a cup of coffee. Like there's a point you want to make the design better. And mm-hmm. that's what needs to be the deliverable. I guess you, you have yeah. to be doing that. The output of it is not going to be a, a creative essay on <laughs> like right. what you found. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So we've got a couple minutes left. Let's just jump back and maybe do two or three minutes on um, that transition from learning what UXR is and then going from professor to UX researcher. And then we can kind of, we'll stop there and save the rest okay. for next time. And so that can be Sounds good. Other thing. Sounds good. So, so you learned what UXR is, you're still a professor. What happened next? Well, I went ahead and did the boot camp, and this timeline that I'm going to describe is pretty much what I've heard from a lot of other people making the transition, because there it does take time to translate your experience into the language that the hiring managers and to let I mean recruiters would really understand. Um, and sorry, I was getting a call there. Um, and that is actually kind of hard because mm. the way that we formulate our CVs is surrounding more how we've maybe been honored for what we've done. Um, right. There's a lot of emphasis on the prestige of you know where we've been published, or um, you know, and, and none of that's really relevant. You even grade point average. I mean, I guess it could matter some places, but what really matters is what is your experience and how closely does it match what we need? Yeah. And that's dry and kind of boring because it's like, oh man, what about all the the style points that I got Mm -hmm. when I was doing it or like, and that's kind of tough that they're, they're concerned with how good of a match it is 
and also what the impact of the work was toward right. the goals that they that the company had. Um, so if you can say the research that I did improved the design such that there were 30% more users visiting the website. What? That's going to over that's going to be part of the business's goal. They get more people on the website. Maybe it's a company that's trying to sell something online. Having more customers, that's better. That's there's not no way of arguing that, right? Hmm. So, if you can put something concrete like that on your resume, even if it's from a different space, like um I'm just making up an example here. I'm because uh, one isn't readily coming to mind from my own resume, but um, if you were involved, say, in online learning and you changed a module so that it was more readable, right? Being able to indicate and describe your process to show that it what you did was methodical and got the result, that's relevant. If you, for some reason, I don't know why you would necessarily, but maybe you needed to, to get a grant and you said, uh, I tested this before and students understood it and not as well. And they had this and this and this to say, and then I redesigned yeah. it. And then they said it was this, this and this, and it was much better. Those qualitative remarks that some. Yeah users made that would be great evidence of impact if you can give a number even better yeah 80 percent of people said they loved it you know this is what businesses love um i didn't do that very much in my work as a professor sure but but i did things where i could say i identified the problem i had a hypothesis i chose a reasonable method that I followed through on. I learned how to solve the problem. I solved it and it had impact. Hmm. And I did things like that. So I yeah. just put it in terms as much as I could of this is how my process is really similar to the user research that I would be doing for your company. Yeah. Well, I think. I think that's a great place to stop for today. Okay. Um, just because we're running low on time. So, Greg, I am going to have you back. I think this was a great introduction yeah. to UXR for the listeners. Thanks, I think there's there's more to go in the future. Uh, I know we talked about it a little bit before, but if you want, for folks who are interested in following along in your journey and maybe want to reach out to you, how would you suggest they do that? So, there's a couple ways. I think. LinkedIn, and this is a, a a very important thing, leaving academia is to get a LinkedIn, if you're especially right. if you're going into the tech space. But I've got a, a LinkedIn page where I can connect with you. You can look me up and send a request, say you listen to the podcast. Um, I'd be happy to connect on there. Uh, I also like to connect with people who are looking for mentoring on ADP lists. Um, I also go on there to look for people who could give me advice mm. um, as a mentor uh, who have 
more years of experience than I do or who are in positions, you know, that I might aspire to. So that's a good place. Both of those LinkedIn and ADP list. Absolutely. And uh, I'll have both of those in the description of this episode. So folks just want to scroll down. I'll have clickable links so that you can find those two things. And, uh, and that's how I got to know Greg is through LinkedIn and then uh, the ADP list as well, which I had never used before. I thought that was a really interesting tool. Uh, well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. The final question, what is one thing that grad, stu- grad students need to do before they graduate? Oh, that they need to do? Or one um, thing you think they should do? Yeah. If they're, if they aren't already planning or having a plan B of what they might want to go into, if their plan A doesn't work out, I think it's worth mapping that out Um, because it's easy to get disillusioned. I think business changes a lot too, and people find themselves in a job or in an industry even where they're like, this is terrible. I got to get out of mm-hmm. here. And if, and for, in my case, I didn't have a plan B and it took a while for me to identify something else that would be good for me. Yeah. And I feel like if I had maybe thought that through, then I could pivot. Yeah. Makes sense. Without like wringing my hands so much. Absolutely. Well, Greg, thanks to you uh, so much for coming on the show. I look forward to continuing to connect with you and uh, love to have you back sometime to continue this conversation. Cheers, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Thanks. I'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye. All right. Folks, thank you for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of my interview with Greg today. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to check out the description of today's episode for links to Greg's LinkedIn profile, as well as his ADP list page, where folks who are interested in UXR can set up a free mentoring meeting with him. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See you all next time. What is your real-life superpower? Oh, my real-life superpower? This, I think, will go out to really and connect with the neurodivergent folks. Like, I am ADHD um, and depression and the superpower i think that that goes with well especially with adhd is is hyper focus um the i think there are also some ones associated with depression as well but uh, i think the one that stands out to me the most is probably the ability to hyper focus on things yeah that makes sense. Even though I can also find myself hyper focusing on problems, <laughs> um, yeah. and 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 then there's that side of it, but then there's also hyper focusing on a work problem, and that's great. Yeah, for sure. What? Uh, so this is kind of related to that. 
What would you say your spirit animal is? Oh, my spirit animal? Um, and why? My spirit animal. It's, I, I like to think of my spirit animal as being like an octopus. And maybe, yeah, maybe there is a connection there because it's like, it's got eight different minds. Hmm. Uh, and it's just always all over the place. Um, but they're also really, they're really interesting and they're able to, um, you know, I guess be kind of creative in the way they, they are in the world, like camouflaging themselves, like in, you know, pressure situations and they're just yeah. really cool creatures. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what, uh, so third and final question is what would you, so let's say you had the ability to teleport to anywhere in the world. It would, it could only be one place though. You could go whenever you wanted and you could return to wherever you were before. What would that one place be? Um, is it place and time? Um, uh, it's current day. Yeah. Just present day. time. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would want to choose somewhere that I haven't been, especially given the limitations of travel like the past yeah. few years. Um, I think I, I love being out in the natural world and things that, you know, fill me with wonder. And so I guess, you know, the pyramids or um you know some some grand things uh and locations i think are really you know impressive mountain ranges i'd love to you know get a chance to to climb in you know some really neat places that i haven't been i'd love to go to hawaii yeah check that out yeah that's awesome 